0: This morning, in Revelation 14, we come to the end of this long backstory, which is Revelation chapters 12 to 14. We have said that these chapters are the whole book in miniature. Chapters 12 to 14 are the whole book in miniature. In fact, they're the whole history of redemption in a nutshell. So, as we open today, let me take a minute or two just to summarize the terrain. Chapter 12 started with the conflict, which goes all the way back to Genesis, between the woman clothed with the sun, faithful Israel, and the dragon figure, who is the ancient serpent. And that story culminates in the birth of the male child, the Christ, who the devil seeks to devour. This is all in Revelation 12. But the Christ is destined to rule all nations. He defeats the dragon. And he's caught up to God and his throne. And what followed then was the the throwing down the expulsion of the accuser from heaven. The text says he comes down with great wrath. And he pursues the church into the wilderness where the church is kept and nourished by God. And then the story, again, John is retelling the history of redemption in these three chapters. The story moves in chapter 13 to matters more immediately relevant to the churches in Asia Minor and to the church historically. And in chapter 13, we saw a beast from the sea, which I've identified first and foremost with the Roman Empire. And then there was a second beast. There was a beast from the land the propaganda arm of the empire. And these beasts jointly wage war on the saints. They conquer and even kill the saints. And then in chapter 14, which we finished this morning, we rush toward the consummation. In In this chapter, it opens with a description, a picture of the Lamb's holy army victorious, called the first fruits, seated with the Lamb in the heavenly Zion, in the midst of what appear to be apparent earthly defeat. And then last week we saw a series of warnings from three angels. The first proclaimed this everlasting gospel to the unbelieving world for the last time. The second prophetically foretold of the fall of Babel, Babylon and the beast. And the third depicted the end, the horrific end, for the followers of the beast. And in the midst of this, throughout, the saints are being called to endurance. And this morning, then, as we come to an end to this little backstory, these three chapters, the promised judgment is finally at hand. And so we'll look at the text under two headings, the grain harvest and the grape harvest, The outline is there in the back inside page of your bulletin. So first, there's a grain harvest. In verse 14, so this is Revelation 14, verse 14. John looks, he sees a white cloud. This is the glory cloud. This is God's mobile throne. When you see imagery like this, you should think the pillar of fire and cloud that followed Israel. The hovering of God dove-like over Israel in the wilderness. The cloud which filled the holy of holies. This is God's throne presence. You should think of the opening of the book when it tells us that soon, Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, that Jesus will be coming on the clouds in glory. And seated on this cloud is one like a son of man. There should be no doubt that this figure is Jesus himself. In the prophetic literature in the Bible, when this cloud would appear, it's, the cloud is called a theophany, a God appearing. And when by prophetic sight one could peer inside the cloud, one would see a throne with a figure on it like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. Or much like John saw earlier in Revelation 4 and 5. And so, this is the Lord God Almighty in the person of His Christ coming in power and glory. As He has repeatedly through Israel's history. One like a son of man. That is the exact terminology used of the enthroned Messiah caught up to God and His throne in Daniel chapter 7. There, in Daniel 7, this one, like a son of man, receives everlasting dominion. A worldwide kingdom. And you might remember that after defeating the fourth beast of Daniel's vision, a beast which is surely tied to the Roman Empire, this son of man gives eternal dominion to the saints. So here we have on this cloud the one who fulfills what the church has always confessed in the creed. He shall come again in glory, in splendor, in his own intrinsic glory, and in the glory of his retinue, his hosts, on this cloud, to judge the living and the dead. And the text continues and tells us that he has a, a crown, a golden crown on his head. It's a sign of Christ's royal dominion. Because his coming is a kingly judicial act. So, the crucial point here that moves this forward is that he has now a sickle. Which is an instrument for reaping the harvest in his hand. And so what we have in this picture is the end of the age. We have the wheat and the tares about to be separated, which was why that was the gospel reading we just heard. And so in verse 15, another angel comes out of the temple. Notice that in the text. The angel comes out of the temple. That is, the angel comes out of God's heavenly temple. His throne room. You know, we've talked a lot about how in Revelation we want to sort of reconfigure our imaginations so that we sort of see the world with the kind of uh, mental furniture that that God through John is supplying for us. So when you see clouds and you look up and you see clouds, you should think of this cloud. You should think of the glory cloud, of the cloud that followed Israel in the wilderness of the cloud which descended into the temple and sits over the cherubim. And you should think that that cloud is God's mobile throne, and if I could peer inside of it, I would see into the heavenly temple itself, into God's own throne room. And that's why the text connects the cloud with another angel, which comes out of the heavenly temple. And so this angel comes out, And calls out with a loud voice to the one who sits on the cloud and says, Take your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come. Two two things are worth noting here, I think. First, no, this is not the gathering of the harvest by the church throughout the age. This here is the final hour. The hour to reap has come, and the harvest of the earth here is fully ripe. And secondly, this is a redemptive, saving, reaping of the nations. Here what's going on is the elect. The people of God are being gathered in. The image is totally positive. The harvest is depicted as a wholesome grain harvest. Without any subsequent threshing or burning of the chaff. And so this is part of the reason that the Lamb's victorious army at the beginning of this chapter was called the firstfruits of the earth. The righteous firstfruits of the earth in the beginning of chapter 14 demand a full harvest of the righteous of the earth at the end of chapter 14. Revelation is nothing if not beautifully, literally structured. And so the prophetic witness of the church in the face of of beasts and propaganda has prepared a full harvest. When Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, he comes to save, to reap, to harvest his people. And the harvest is depicted here in verse 16 as one single action. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth And the earth was harvested. This earth, think about it to this point in Revelation. The earth has been the domain of the beast. It has been the scene of these horrific seal and trumpet judgments. And yet now, through the faithful witness of the saints, as a consequence of the slain but now standing lamb, that that same earth is reaped in a harvest of righteousness. Things are not always what they seem. Your witness shall be made effective. Your tears and your doubts and your failures and your frailties, our own weaknesses, Jesus is the first fruits and our witness and lives are bound up with him. And so the harvest is sure. There has been very little indication in Revelation to this point that there was a worldwide harvest of grain coming. Yet, nevertheless, underneath and in the midst of things, God is working through the seed you sow, through your witness. So the second thing I want to point out here is the second major point is the grape harvest. In in verse 17, another angel comes out of the temple in heaven. As an aside uh, about John's literary art, there are seven angels in this. uh, Well, seven figures, six angels, just in chapter 14. Three angels at the beginning. Jesus, the one like a son of man on a cloud in the middle, and then three angels after that. So John has Jesus flanked, literally, by his heavenly hosts in glory. So yet another angel comes out of the temple in heaven, and he has a sharp sickle. Then a third angel comes out from the altar. This is the heavenly incense altar. And this angel is said to have authority over the fire, now, this is a test of our memories because this is a clear reference back to chapter 8 where an angel took fire from the heavenly incense altar and he threw it down onto the earth. Right? This is another, I think, crucial point to get from Revelation. That incense fire was, the text back there in chapter 8 tells us this, that incense fire was the prayers of the saints. Remember, prayer goes up Judgment comes down, or salvation comes down. And thus we called prayer, after the great title of Eugene Peterson's book, Reversed Thunder. We pray God's word back to him, and thunder comes back. And so, the prayers of the saints, which echo the prayers of the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6, These are what precipitate not only judgments in history, get this, but the final judgment, which is about to be the final judgment of the wicked, which is about to be depicted here. So it is subtle. John does this subtly. But you should pick this up. You are and are called to be a shaper of history through your prayers. Your prayers shape Big event. They're more important than the G7 summit. You are a shaper of history. You look for and you hasten the coming of the kingdom. And you shape that when you pray, Thy kingdom come. And thus, all of our prayers are bent toward this end. We pray with this scene in view. Not just some of our prayers, but all of them are oriented this way. I mean, after all, at the heart of prayer is communion with God and his heavenly temple. In other words, at the heart of praying is a desire to be united with the one to whom we pray. And if that desire is at the heart of prayer, then the coming eschatological glory is at the heart of prayer. This way, prayer is not simply a list of things. It's a longing. It's a yearning. That's what's at the heart of it. And so John is depicting this, saying, your prayers precipitate not only judgment, but they call forth the kingdom. So, The angel calls out with a loud voice to the other angel with a sickle and says, take your sharp sickle, gather the clusters from the earth's vine, because the grapes are ripe, meaning they're full of juice. And this harvest here then has to be distinguished from the grain harvest. This is a second harvest. It's distinct. It's the judgment of the wicked depicted as ripe grapes. And they're first gathered and then they're trodden in this wine press. So, verse 19, the angel swings his sickle across the earth and then harvests the grapes, throws the grapes into the wine press, and the wine press here is called the great wine press of God's wrath. Now, I won't revisit this because we spent a lot of time on it last week, but the basic point is if you drink Babylon's wine, then you're going to drink the unmixed, full-strength wine of God's wrath. It's only because Jesus has drunk the cup of wine for us that he has turned the wine of God's wrath into that wine, into the wine of the new covenant. And so the wine press, verse 20 says, is trampled outside the city. The text doesn't say who treads the, the wine press, but it's very clear from chapter 19 that Christ treads the winepress. And the whole scene here is, is borrowed from Isaiah 63, which was our Old Testament lesson this morning, where we see the Lord coming and his clothes are splattered with blood. That's not his blood. The text says it's the blood of his enemies because the day of vengeance is at hand. And so, what has happened here is the Holy Church, which John told us earlier, for ex- many times, but particularly in chapter 11, he said the Holy Church is going to be given over to the nations to be trampled underfoot. Here the church is vindicated, as the beast and his followers are trampled down in the great winepress of God. And this wine press, this place of judgment and wrath, is outside the city. Meaning outside the city of God, outside the heavenly Zion. So, the text says, blood flowed out of the press. It's another example of an eye-for-eye eye judgment. It's, yes, it's harsh apocalyptic liter- uh, imagery. But it's really nothing more than the purity of justice. Right? Those who've become drunk on the blood of the saints, in answer to the prayer of those same saints, have their own blood poured out. And this blood flows high and far. This is military, ancient military imagery, as high as a horse's bridle and as far as 1,600 stadia. So this is, again, figurative language, but it's figurative language for this strict, unqualified, total nature of the judgment enacted. You should treat this literature the way people often say we should treat the words of the current president, meaning we take it seriously, but not literally. The, The language here is to be taken seriously, But it is metaphorical language. But it's metaphorical language for a strict, total eye for eye judgment. And as for the 1600 stadia, it's almost surely symbolic. It's 4 squared times 10 squared. And both 4 and 10, as hopefully we know by now, are numbers that symbolize the completeness of the whole world. The world is repeatedly divided up into four realms in Revelation. And the beast and the dragon, the great nemesis of Christ and his saints, they both have ten horns, symbolizing the worldwide extent of their evil activity. So this number is surely intended to depict this total worldwide judgment. And so we have a picture in the text of the final redemption of the world and the final judgment of the wicked. It's a simple text in that respect. This is where the whole book, and indeed this is where the whole of history, is heading. And we do well to remind us of that fact. Scripture is perpetually reminding us of this fact. This text, in one sense is just the last couple phrases of the creed, he shall come in glory to judge the living and the dead, in apocalyptic language. But it's critical, I think, that we constantly recall this end, this judgment of the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked, and its reality to to mind. I mean, without this end, There could not be justice in the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but in the 20th century, people shrink from these images, right? They tend to, um, theologians, academics, and many people in general find it a little too gruesome, uh, just a little too uh, emotionally uh, draining. And and there tends to be uh, a a, a desire to reframe this or avoid it or look away from it. But without this end, there can be no rectification, no restitution, no restoration for the evils and the injustices of history. We either, and it would be ridiculous without this end to talk about justice now. There can be no norms if this is not where history is going. If this is not where history is going, there are no norms. We're just swirling around endlessly, making stuff up, even when we talk about justice and norms. And without this end, there can be no hope. What happens if one shrinks back from these scenes? What is one left with? It's left with a Christianity that doesn't give you a new heavens and a new earth, that doesn't eradicate evil that doesn't rectify the injustices of the past, right? I mean, who's going to speak for Stalin's 60 million victims? What are we supposed to say? Well, you know, the past is never dealt with. I encourage you, if you shrink away from a passage like this, to understand what it is you're shrinking away from. You're shrinking away from a meaningful cosmos, Meaning itself, meaning itself depends on this coming in glory. And so, everyone's going to participate in one of these two harvest scenes. There's no third options. Every life, every story, every narrative is gathered up here. And that's another thing to notice here. There's been a lot of fantastic work in the 20th century on, on the Bible as story and reading the Bible as a narrative. We just had a whole Old Testament uh, adult class on this. Reading the Bible as one narrative. But the key thing about narratives and stories is they have endings. Right? And so there would be no story. There can be no narrative without this ending. Both an ending of a sequence, the sequence ends, and an end in the sense of fulfilling the purpose. Now, I know this might sound trivial or simple, but I do think it slips away from us. This is what holds the narrative of your life together and the story that the gospel is together. And so the interlude in the text has now ended, and it ends where history ends. And this interlude has reminded us of some of these main concerns for us. You are called to bear witness. You have a legal status. Not only can you shape history by your prayer life, but you are deputized in a sort of covenantal legal fashion to testify in the earth. You're to make sure you're found. John has told us in the in the Lord's virginal, blameless truth-telling army. We've repeatedly and it's no trouble for me to repeat what John repeats. We've repeatedly been warned that the situation of the church is perilous. Perhaps in our day, fragile would be a better word, but it was, it was perilous and fragile for the churches in Asia Minor. And that means you need discernment and wisdom and patient endurance. The text is about stealing ourselves against compromise with an idolatrous culture, with the powers of the age. And the text repeatedly reminds the church we have to be ready to suffer, to follow the Lamb. So we stand always and ever under the end, under this scene or scenes like it in the Bible. And so visions like this, this is another way to put this, visions like this must animate our own vision of the future. What fills up your vision of the future? I mean, is it completely cluttered up by things upon the linear time scale of this age? Because the biblical vision of the future is repeatedly a vision of the coming glory of the risen and ascended Christ in the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the establishment of a new cosmos. Text after text after text after text after text directs our eyes to this vision and we're constantly bending them back into the shrunken frame of this age. These visions must animate our vision of the future. This is to be the dominant conception we have of our own futures. I mean, after all, our earthly futures are vaporizing mists. So, cultivate an apocalyptic imagination. The Christian hope impinges back into this age and infuses itself at every point, and it's to shape and to then shatter and reshape our thinking and our acting with its transformative power. So stand fast with this hope and in this hope, and in this vision. He who endures to the end, he who ripens into mature grain, shall be saved. Amen.